Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubhanga, Malan and Shweta. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So our big stories in this edition are significant developments in Myanmar and the history of enforced disappearances and transitional justice across the region. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we're talking about Democracy Day in Tibet, Bangladesh's ban on PUBG and other games, the fate of the Millennium Challenge Corporation in Nepal and the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Let's begin with the situation in Myanmar. Thanks, Raisa. So, there have been some new developments in Myanmar which could significantly uh, impact its political direction in the coming days. Um, but I wanted to begin by noting that August 25th marked the fourth year of the beginning of the genocidal attacks on Myanmar's Rohingya people uh, by the army. Um, now, what was interesting about this date this time around was also the way in which the government in exile, it's formally called the National Unity Government, um, but also the military regime, how they responded to this date. Um, so the NUG came out with a statement saying that they were deeply saddened by the horrendous violence, the human rights violations, um, all the displacement that Rohingya people suffered four years ago. Uh, and they also repeated their more recent commitment to abolishing the uh, discriminatory citizenship laws. But the statement avoided using the word genocide, which is you know not unexpected since Part of its current leadership was in charge uh, of the government when the violence occurred. Um, But the military regime's response to the same date was also remarkable, isn't it? Yes, it was quite ironic, um, especially given that on the 24th of August, the military regime filed this legal amendment to criminalize genocide in Myanmar's domestic law and define it by the recognized international standard. But they haven't stated the reason behind the amendment, but experts say that this could be an attempt by the military to ease international pressure for genocide charges and atrocities against the Rohingya, and also to undermine international legal mechanisms, as the military can now try and argue that genocide can be investigated and prosecuted domestically and international action is therefore not needed. Now, with the UN expected to decide whether Myanmar is represented in the General Assembly by the military regime or the National Unity Government, uh, two key questions that remain are who will represent Myanmar at the ICJ and what the implications of this decision will be for a genocide case before the ICJ. Yeah, and just related to this, um, I recently read a story about the human rights ministry of this government in exile which has started collecting information on the military government's killings and uh, what the energy terms war crimes since the February coup. And so they aim to submit a report to the UN Human Rights Council after, uh, later this month. So it's likely we'll hear more on this subject in the coming days. Yeah, Shubhanga. And I think um, all these kind of developments also need to be kind of put in context of the political contestation in Myanmar today, especially you know, the escalation of political violence. So something that's worth pointing out is that the armed wing of the NUG, which is the People's Defense Forces, has been resisting the military government through kind of sporadic attacks across the country. 
Um, but just last week, the NUG actually formally declared war against the military government to root out military rule. So it appears that we're going to see more unrest and even more deaths in the coming days. Although, you know, it's not clear if the PDF actually does have the capacity to conduct um, a country-wide war. So it's not clear what the implication of that statement is, but that's been uh, interesting to kind of follow. So moving on to our next big story on transitional justice in South Asia. Uh, now, August 30th marked the International Day to Protect Victims of Enforced Disappearances. Um, it was marked across the South Asian region by protests, research and stories um, highlighting this ongoing crisis of um, enforced disappearances. Yeah, did any of you guys see the event that was hosted by the Office on Missing Persons? Oh, yeah. Not me. Yeah, so... Um, this was one of the kind of first engagements that the OMP had with the public since the presidential elections, when the 20th Amendment allowed the president more input into the appointment of independent commissions, and critics kind of say that this has undermined their independence. Um, what was interesting was that it was kind of markedly different to earlier events in the previous regime where there was at least some attempt to kind of center the stories of families of the disappeared. Uh, the OMP didn't really talk about their plans for the future. They also didn't allow anyone apart from the panelists to speak or ask questions. So people were just kind of posting questions in the chat box. There were some protests though, I heard. Yes, so the family members of the disappeared did mark the day with protests at home in Muletibu and in other areas. Um, you know, they lit candles and they held placards calling for justice. There were also several Zoom events which were attended by families of the disappeared, which were held in Singhala and Tamil. Um, you know, considering that the country is currently under lockdown because of COVID-19 and, and increase in cases, the families had to adapt their way of protesting. Um, but Sri Lanka's actually had a long history of enforced disappearances, which dates back to the JVP insurrections in the 1970s. And there have been multiple commissions which have been established to investigate disappearances over the years. The first of which I think was set up in uh, the 90s by President R. Premadasa at the time. But these commissions didn't really lead to anything concrete for families. So family members have expressed disenchantment with government commissions. You know, I've personally uh, heard many of them kind of saying that they've had to repeat the same very traumatic story for them before commission after commission, and they've had no redress and no answers. So um, while the OMP was finally established in 2016, these processes kind of came to a standstill during Sri Lanka's constitutional crisis in 2018. And I guess this recent OMP event wouldn't really have inspired confidence among families waiting for answers in Sri Lanka. So over in Bangladesh, um, Human Rights Watch published Where No Sun Can Enter, a decade of enforced disappearances in Bangladesh last month. Now, this 57-page um, report based on over 115 interviews, it urges the UN to carry out an independent international investigation into enforced disappearances in Bangladesh 
and um, called for donors and trade partners to hold senior members of the country's security forces accountable. It reports that nearly 600 people have been forcibly disappeared since uh, Prime Minister Hasina took office. Now, this is according to Bangladeshi human rights groups. The majority of these were either released or formally produced in court as arrests, and some were even found dead. Um, Human Rights Watch has verified 86 enforced disappearances cases in the last 10 years, in which the victims' whereabouts remain unknown uh, to this day. And in past episodes of South Asia Sphere, we have spoken about the controversial Digital Security Act, which gives arbitrary powers to law enforcement agencies to carry out invasive forms of surveillance, intimidate and imprison journalists, social media users, and even children under 18 for criticizing the ruling party. Yeah, right. And uh, I think importantly, the report also talks about the politicized nature of some of these incidents, yeah. you know, including um, cases of um, opposition members and activists being killed in what is euphemistically called crossfire incidents or, or gunfights. Um, and usually such incidents um, also escalate just before the elections. Yeah, exactly, Shubhang. Now, uh, the responses from the government to numerous reports in the past have been either denial or mockery or both. Now, for example, Sajid Bahamad Wazid, the son of uh, Sheikh Hasina and government advisor on information and communication technology, in 2018 stated, uh, and I quote, uh, many of the disappeared are leaders of the opposition who are accusing the government of kidnapping them while they are, in fact, trying to avoid arrest by disappearing. Some of the disappearances are almost comical. Now, the thing is, this is, this is not hearsay. These um, enforced disappearances have, uh, have been all well documented by the UN, civil society groups, journalists, uh, the Bangladesh National Human Rights Commission, and, and of course, uh, victims and their families. And it's, it's no surprise that many of these victims were uh, critics of the ruling Awami League government, now, which, which reveals uh, the extremely politicized nature of these incidents. And uh, the situation in Nepal on this front is also quite disappointing. Um, two national bodies have actually been formed since 2014-15, I think, as, as part of the transitional justice process um, to basically investigate the abuses that took place during the conflict between the Maoist rebels and the state. Um, one of them is called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, the other is a body for investigating enforced disappearances. Uh, and the latter one has actually published a list of 2,500 individuals who were allegedly forcibly disappeared. Um, but the key thing to know about, you know, on this matter in Nepal is that successive governments, uh, and which basically means all major political parties have tried their best to water down the laws uh, that are supposed to apply to the guilty parties. And the Supreme Court has managed to strike down all such attempts so far. Um, but at this point, it's difficult to actually even see, you know, investigations begin on this case, um, not to mention the eventual litigation. In December 2020, the Maldivian government ratified the Transitional Justice Act and established the Office of the Ombudsman for Transitional Justice to initiate long overdue redress mechanisms for survivors of past abuses. However, despite multiple pledges for an independent and open investigation and prosecution of perpetrators of enforced disappearances, such as journalist Ahmad Rilwan, his family still awaits justice. 
Recently, Rilwan's family raised concern over the fact that the Commission on Deaths and Disappearances, after three years since its inception, has not yet forwarded a single case out of the 27 incidents that the Commission is investigating for prosecution. The Commission also said that the investigation of Maldives blogger Yamin Rashid's murder is delayed due to an ongoing trial in connection to the case. Uh, to find out more, also check out our articles on the Maldives Transitional Justice Act by Mushfiq Muhammad and Yamin Rashid's sister Aisha Rashid's account of the family's struggle for justice. Moving on to our next segment, Around South Asia in 5 Minutes. Thanks, Shweta. So, um, moving to Tibet. Tibet actually marked its 61st Democracy Day on September 2nd, which actually marked the anniversary of the first elected representative body, the Tibetan Parliament, in 1960. Um, and this is marked by the exiled Tibetan community. Uh, now, an official ceremony was held, which was organized by the Central Tibet Administration with speeches being made on the evolution of Tibetan democracy and dance performances. But in contrast, just weeks before, on 19th of August, China marked the 70th anniversary of what they termed the peaceful liberation of the Tibet Autonomous Region, and they renewed calls to accept the rule of the Communist Party. So it's been really interesting to see the different reporting and wording used during these two official days, uh, with China continuing to use terms like peaceful liberation to mark the occupation of Tibet and the exiled Tibetan community choosing to commemorate the anniversary of electing their first parliament in exile instead. Bad news for PUBG and Free Fire players in Bangladesh because the High Court has directed the government to put a stop to all kinds of destructive online games for three months to, and I quote, save children and adolescents from moral and social degradation. This ruling was precipitated by uh, a petition by two Supreme Court lawyers that requested the High Court to order government authorities to identify those who are involved in uh, money laundering using apps and online games. On 7th of September, the Taliban announced an all-male interim government drawn almost entirely from Taliban ranks and those who had positions in the 1990s Taliban, including an interior minister under UN sanction and wanted by the FBI for his ties with al-Qaeda. This list did not include any women, despite promises of an inclusive cabinet. It's also worth noting that the Taliban has excluded a Ministry of Women's Affairs and brought back the Ministry for Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. The Taliban have also announced that Afghan women will be required to wear conservative Islamic clothing and that university classrooms must be separated by gender. In response to recent protests led by Afghan women, the Taliban orchestrated a march of completely veiled women who filled an auditorium at Kabul University's Education Center. To find out more on this, uh, read our latest interview with Mary Akrami, Executive Director of the Afghan Women Network, on how Afghan women activists have a difficult future under the Taliban administration. 
So, um, in Nepal, the media and public sphere is right now saturated with news about the Millennium Challenge Corporation, um, which is a U.S. foreign aid agency. Um, Nepal signed a deal for a $500 million grant back in 2017, um, basically for constructing electricity transmission lines and upgrading a highway. Uh, back when, you know, it made very little news and there was no controversy. But over the past two years, there has been growing opposition to it in some quarters. Uh, and it's become a huge public controversy rife with misinformation um, and it remains to be ratified in the parliament. Um, my own observation has been that this has very little to do with um, any debate on the economics of foreign aid, which actually would be quite valuable, uh, but more to do with you know the kind of narratives about increasing um, global power competition in the region and maybe more interestingly, how that gets deployed in domestic political scenario for domestic consumption and by different actors, um, sometimes in unpredictable ways. And those who followed the fate of the MCC in Sri Lanka might also draw um, interesting observations to what's happening in Nepal. And now we'll be moving on to our culture section bookmark. Thanks, Shubanga. So, um... Yeah, this month I wanted to actually talk about a podcast series called Witnesses to History. It's been put together by this digital platform, historicaldialogue.lk. Um, and it kind of features interviews with oral historians, architects and foodies in Sri Lanka. And um, if you want to know a little bit more about Sri Lanka, particularly different kind of historical aspects that don't always make it to you know, uh, what's very easily publicly available, it's worth a listen. Um, I particularly enjoyed the last episode, which centers around food, Um, but not just because it's a topic that I find interesting, but I also like the way that that particular episode kind of wove in these anecdotes which have contemporary relevance. Um, So in, in this episode, one of the people being interviewed talks about her memories of rationing and import controls in the 1970s, um, which does have contemporary relevance with today's food emergency. Um, And there's this kind of discussion of domestic workers in passing as well, uh, which has also been a topic of discussion in Sri Lanka after the death of a young domestic worker. Um, And of course, there's also discussion of Sri Lanka's history of conflict, including the 1983 riots. Um, so if you're kind of interested in, um, just listening to different kind of aspects of history, uh, from different oral history projects to, you know, the history of, uh, some of our iconic buildings and like the history of our food, um, I would recommend checking that podcast out. Yeah. Um, so I've also been hearing nothing but good things about the podcast and I haven't really gotten around to listen to listening to all of them. But I did join one of the earlier webinars um, on conflict and memory in um, Sri Lankan English writing on the eight, 1980s. Now, um, uh, early Sri Lankan writers in English were you know, mostly critiqued for either being you know, too elitist or, or focusing on a, on a utopian village. So when 1983 happened, and of course, then the war, it acted like uh, like an impetus for writers. Uh, so much so that there had to be some mention of it in their, you know, poetry or writing. 
or they would be accused of contributing to uh, historical erasure. Now, uh, for example, Ondaatje has been accused of uh, trivializing the JUP insurrection, the, the first one in 19, uh, 1971. And uh, so I was really interested in this webinar, you know, in an academic sense too, uh, because we often have like post-90s writers who write about the 80s, uh, especially about the 1983 Black July, and of course uh, the uh, 87 89 insurrection. Um, and you could say that, that they were quite removed from it, you know, in terms of time. And I mean, there's not a lot of writers except for Jean um, Ansaraikam and uh, Richard G. Soisa, who responded to what was happening in the country, like with a, like immediately. So there is a sense of immediacy to their writing rather than the post-90s writers like, uh, you know, uh, Shyam Selvadure, uh, Ayature Santan, um, Amlavana, Sivanadan, and others who reflect on the 80s. So, um, so I, I really found the, the discussion, the webinar, uh, like really interesting, and uh, I'm I'm ho- I'm hoping to move you know move on to the podcast as well. Interesting. Actually, what you said, Marlon, remind reminded me of a piece that I worked on, in the sense that this kind of erasure of like um, the violence of the insurrections, it was also carried over into the press. So. Um, right when I was doing a piece that was kind of mark marking like so many years since the 83 riots, we went to the archives and we were going through like all the press coverage. And it was so interesting, the different language that was used um, right. to kind of describe people who were being arrested um, or who were, you know, uh, killed uh, because they were suspected of being involved in the, uh, the JVP riots or, you know, they were right. being rounded up for questioning and those who uh, were of Tamil ethnicity and who were, you know, suspected of being uh, part of the LTT, you know, they would, right. the newspapers would very freely use the word terrorist for Tamils, but mm. um, it was, uh, I forget the exact word they used, but it was something like revolutionaries, like a much softer kind of word. Mm. Um, and that was really interesting and that kind of, reminded me of that yeah i think i mean um i mean of course uh, i can't remember as far back as the the you know the late 80s but uh, i mean when you even when you look uh, you know for stories for especially like you know news pieces um there it, there seems to be like a you know like a fog over it of course we know what happened but there's uh, so much that's been kind of, uh, you know, uh, that's been like erased uh, from the public domain. So uh, it's, I, I, even if you want to like look, look back, I mean, you, uh, I mean, thankfully we have, you know, people who lived during that time. And like you, for example, you know, even, even your, I mean, our parents uh, who, who went through that time, who kind of, um, you know, it's it's a lived experience for them. So, uh, so we we actually can find information about it. But I mean, there's there's always I mean I mean in my opinion, there's always seemed to be like a like a fog over, uh, especially during that last uh, you know like the the eighty seven eighty nine that um, time period. Yeah, that's true. I guess it does live through a lot through unfortunately through a lot of like oral histories and memories, like you said. I mean. Mm. That was my first encounter, like of hearing of the insurrections, was through my parents' memories of it. So, 
um that's why this podcast also is kind of interesting in that it's trying to yeah. actually engage with these different projects uh and like also has sections on oral histories and things like that um so yeah definitely recommend checking it out so over in india on august 24th the delhi university despite protests from at least 14 members of the academic council decided to drop bengali writer and activist mahashweta devi's um story titled draupadi and also works of tamil dalit feminist writers bama and suketharani from the ba honors english syllabus as it allegedly shows the indian army in a bad light hence international now over 1000 academics writers students have called on the university to reinstate these texts so my recommendation for the month would be to go back and engage with these texts which are essential readings for students now more than ever to understand systemic oppressions of the dalit and adivasi communities especially in gendered terms have you guys been watching anything these days i've actually finished the chair oh yeah i watched that as well yeah yeah, yeah same here what did you guys think of it um i mean i i i thought that it was funny like there were parts that were quite funny but um i also came away like i personally really like sandra o oh. she's hilarious yeah. so I, i kind of enjoyed watching her perform again but having said that i had kind of mixed feelings about the series and especially the way that they portrayed um students um they kind right. of had this very simplistic portrayal of uh students as being very reactionary and not really thinking critically and engaging with issues and being so like focused on social media in a way that felt like a caricature so i yeah wasn't a big fan of that aspect of it Mm, yeah i think that's an interesting word caricature i i i kind of felt that all throughout uh that these were caricatures of uh, of uh, like you know different elements in academia that uh, we tend to see from the outside like uh, so the stereotypes i mean of course stereotypes uh, you know some of them uh, some of the the the, the um, you know characters they do reflect what's going on i mean what's happening in the academia too uh but it seemed like you said very quite uh, a kind of a reductive engagement um but yeah like i mean it's it's a nice uh, funny uh i mean if you don't think so much about what's going on you can just you know uh, it's it's very short it's like six episodes i think so you can just get through it uh, you know without really uh, really thinking about uh, um like going into it like really in depth i was also kind of thinking you know in terms of what kind of cinema and tv shows that are being made or were made in south asia about universities and higher education and kind of was thinking about the update that shweta was giving on certain kind of readings being removed from university syllabus and you know and to think if there have been kind of cinematic ways of capturing that you know in in films or tv shows and I mean, I'm trying to think of um, a South Asian cinema that I've dealt interestingly with with higher education and excluding things like Three Idiots or you know that kind of Bollywood version of caricatures of of university. 
can you guys think of something do you remember um in terms of like i think in sri lanka we have uh, we have something called the university novel um so not really uh, uh, you know a, on the, like the visual medium but uh, there are lots of novels written about uh, um especially the university of peradeniya um so like and you know lots of bad novels uh, there are some good ones too but like uh, like some terrible novels you know you know these people they wake up when they're like uh, 60 or 70 and they uh, kind of nostalgically try to recreate uh, you know their time at the university and you know with when it comes to like pera then it's a very like a beautiful university so you know they talk about the flowers and the garden the trees and everything so uh, and while while kind of ignoring everything else that was happening during that time you know the the politicized nature of the of university life you know class issues uh, because like these most of these writers are from uh, you know from the elite class and they were like english speaking and uh, so so they were quite removed from uh, uh, what was going on during that time so my recommendation for this month is uh, this new book by investigative reporter juicy joseph uh, titled the silent coup where he essentially argues that the indian democracy has been subverted by the country's security agencies um who've grown so you know highly sophisticated uh, but also arbitrary and politicized and, and corrupt in their functioning and he basically links this to how you know in, um institutions like the intelligence agencies um police army tax departments they've all responded to um insurgencies and militancies of the 1980s and 90s uh in such ways that you know today these bodies act in ways that frequently violate um indian citizens legal and constitutional protections often at the behest of their uh, political masters so that's my recommendation and on that note that's it for this edition of south asia sphere do head to our website himalmag.com to see more of himal's work we actually just recently had um another episode of south asian conversations our third which is on borders and borderlands so if you want to uh, check that out do head to our website as well and while you're at it check out our membership plans and support us thanks everyone bye 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 for more himal podcasts go to himalmag.com/podcasts